Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Caleb Zachran, Assistant Editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to New Books in Military History. Today, I'm speaking with Cahill J. Nolan, Professor of History at Boston University, about his new book, Mercy, Humanity and War, from Oxford University Press. Mercy details the pity of war, acts of bravery, and the tragic humanity that coexists alongside brutality. Cahill has written a book with an urgent message for the world today, a world facing over 100 armed conflicts and the continual drumbeat of war. Oh, thank you for joining me today on the New Books Network. Oh, thank you for the invitation. Of course, uh, you know th- this is a, a very, you know, very, very hard to read, sad book, but uh, but also covering very important topics. Uh, but I think before jumping into the subject matter of the book, I was wondering if you could just tell us a little about yourself and your background. Uh, actually, I put some of that in the book. This is uh, as we were talking before we, you know, you started to record. Um, this is an odd duck of a book. Uh, it's not like any other book I've written. Uh, it's not arguing sort of a traditional academic central thesis. It's much more personal, as I'm sure you, you know, you, you, you encountered. Um, the stuff about myself that, I don't know what, what matters. Um, I, I tell you how, where the book came from. And the last book I wrote was a study of war over, you know, about a thousand year period. And, uh, and it was uh, it 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 made me bang into on a daily basis as I was researching it and writing it the endless repetitive patterns of stupidity and vanity in war and that was kind of depressing enough and my students found it <laughs> uh, and and they kind of said you know you should try and write uh, you know not quite a happier book but you should you should write something more more uplifting than than this sort of depressing analytical survey of 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 war and i i took it to heart and so i decided uh for that and a variety of other reasons but that was part of the mix that i would go looking for mercy in war um and that's what i did uh as i was researching and writing this book i went looking for mercy i found it here and there but a lot less than i thought so in many ways this is an even more depressing book than, than the first one I wrote in terms of it's about the hum, it's about humanity in war, but necessarily to illustrate how important humanity in war is, you need to discuss and present the inhumanity of war, and I do that here. And I do think some people are not going to like that. Um, that um, there are there is a, a, a small genre out there of books that are sort of circle around this topic, um, and I think what readers are looking for sometimes and they're not going to find it here um is kind of a, a happy talk about war a happy, a happy book about war no can't be done i just don't think it can be done how would you uh sort of define mercy uh maybe in general or even in the context of the, the book how we might how might we think about mercy as a virtue i i i know aristotle famously said that courage is the highest you know of all virtues because without courage you know you you can't really locate 
or practice all of the rest. And who am I to disagree with Aristotle? But I do. Uh, I think mercy is the highest uh, of all virtues. Um, uh, and it, it affects, uh, Shakespeare famously said, you know, it, 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 that it affects both the giver and the receiver. Um, and uh, how, I'm not religious, but I will use a religious phrase, I think, think uh, to explain this connection. I think of mercy as a moment of sudden grace um, between two human beings. Uh, the element of mercy in war that interested me the most, I write about other examples, more sustained examples, kind of institutionalized examples like nursing corps and medics and things like that. But the, the episodes that interested me the most um, are the ones where mercy occurs in a flash. Uh, and it's literally a flash. And I think what that flash is is a recognition of shared humanity, that everything about being a soldier, being trained to be a soldier, the experience of combat, the fear, the adrenaline, and so on, um, uh, your training, all of it, the propaganda that your nation uh, soaks you in, all of it is is working for that not to happen. And yet, for a moment, you see, you pierced through to the truth which is that, uh, yes, that's an enemy over there. Yes, I may yet have to kill that enemy, uh, but it's a human being. Uh, and there is a flash of the shared suffering of uh, the human condition. I think that's what happens. I have to say, I don't know. Um, these At the end of the day, and I do say this in the introduction to the book, I decided not to try and theorize about these things, not to try and categorize these things, like I'm some kind of you know, a poor man sociologist. Um, uh, so I decided to tell the stories, let readers, you know, I mean, I, I, I act as a guide in, you know, in, in many ways, but readers are going to have to decide for themselves, where is this coming from? Because I'm not sure. Uh, the closest I would come to a solid conclusion on that is, and I'm not happy to arrive at this conclusion. I was hoping to discover methods, you know, mercy and examples of mercy that would then allow us to sort of change officer training, change soldiers training, rewrite officer uh, codes, rewrite international laws of war, that kind of thing. And I really came to the conclusion, and maybe I'm wrong still, that that's not where it comes from, that mercy that you encounter on the battlefield, dignity, grace that you encounter on the battlefield, almost certainly was carried there by the individual, not by the army, not by the nation, what we say about ourselves and our virtue and our and our domestic propaganda and our self propaganda um, that it's carried there and it probably has more to do with what they learned from their mother, you know, twenty years earlier than it did uh, from what they learned from their you know master sergeant. Oh, I'm certain about that. It's got more to do with their mother than their master sergeant, or any code of laws, right? Or officer code. This book is filled with it with so many stories uh i was wondering how you went about selecting the stories that you chose to include um or you know if there's any any secondary literature primary literature that you looked at that you were really struck by and well, helped you primary write. literature was often uh a sort of uh newspaper contemporaneous newspaper accounts like i mean on the second world war i mean the new york times and people like new york times is wonderful archive you know digital archive and I mean, they had embedded correspondents, I mean, who are right out there and, you know, in the Hurkin Forest or at the Bulge or on, literally on the beaches at Normandy and so forth. Uh, and there were equivalents in uh, that are now often translated in the Russian army or the German army and 
and, and so on. Uh, but secondary literature, no, not a lot. You, you, you tend to get, uh, I mean, there are books about nurses, which I, uh, you know, the history of nursing, military nursing, military medicine. I mean, they're secondary literature, uh, but it's not focused on the notion of mercy. Uh, it's focused on some element of military history, whether it's medical history or whatever. That literature I consulted. But in terms of, is there a secondary literature about mercy? There is, a, there is but it's kind of a populist um, you know, things like, and often wrong, it's false. Uh, so, for example, that famous story that a lot of Americans know and believe about, you know, the Battle of Fredericksburg, where a Confederate soldier supposedly heard a moaning wounded, uh, there's a statue there uh, to this, uh, uh, go out and, and bring water to the wounded, and that the, the Union troops were so moved by this that they stopped shooting, and he went from wounded to wounded man bringing water and so on. Um it appears not to be true. Were there other incidents that happened on battlefields? Did people bring water to wounded? Did people go out and risk to their own lives and bring in enemy wounded? Yeah, that happened, but perhaps not in this particular case that is so celebrated. And then you look closely at that and you realize a lot of these stories about sort of Confederate honor and so forth really are date to magazine publications, book publications between about 1895, 1915. 1920 and what was going on of course it was that that was the beginning of the sort of overt loss cause revisionism um that wouldn't peak until the 20s and 30s and statuary and so forth that aren't thrown down last year i mean i told my students just this week one of the most remarkable things i showed them a picture of nathan bedford Forrest standing over the corpse of his brother it's a painting um and, and they didn't know who he was so i told them you know who he was after the war and so on uh and then reminded he was them, the leader of the kkk correct yeah he was a, basically yeah not the founder founder but the, the first you know grand wizard basically and the leader and and brought cavalry tactics like the night riders you know to to the suppression of black voting rights and you know uh, terrorizing black families they did they did within you know the the civilian world what they had done in the battlefield um and then I point out, you know, his statue was taken down last year. Last year. Um, that's 140 years, 50 years, more. Um, yeah. But, but you know, uh, I, I did find examples. Uh, I, 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 and uh, the ones I ch would choose to put in often were the ones that I hoped would pierce people's uh, assumptions about how virtue is always on our side, whichever side we're talking about. Germans, the, I mean, you're listening to the Russians, Ukrainians, and both are claiming, you know, exclusive virtue um, uh, and so on. And you can have arguments about that. And the argument ultimately is empirical and factual. And we don't have all the evidence yet. Um, and uh, but there will be war crimes on both sides and there will be moral heroism on both sides uh, as well. It might be disproportionately distributed, whether you're the Russian army or the Ukrainian army, but it will be there. You, we will find it. The same way some of the most remarkable stories, I think, in the book are about German soldiers in the Second World War who risked their lives uh, to save wounded Americans or wounded Russians or, or, or whatever. And German dissenters who actually deserted in order to change uniforms so they could fight against Germany because uh, they had been conscripted in Austria or, you know, uh, and they were not... Uh, and they were, they were uh, left in revulsion by what they saw on the Eastern Front. There's one example of Sorry, I'm wondering here. No, that's a, a, you know, you mentioned a little bit about, you know, how, uh, you know, the, the mix of myth and story that 
often happens around wars. Uh, and, you know, war stories are definitely different than your typical story that someone might tell. Obviously, oftentimes if someone's telling like a story about some a business, they'll use war metaphors, but it's kind of oh, hard yeah. to use war metaphors to describe war. So what what is the nature of war stories? How are they they shared? And, you know, if there are sort of general features of war stories, you're no, I'm war. actually going to have a, sorry, I didn't mean to override you. No, go for it. Yeah. I, 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 I'm going to have a couple of chapters on this uh, in the book I'm working on now. Um, I actually had them in this book and my editor said correctly, uh, no, they, they work better in a different context. So that's where I moved them. But uh, so I have a whole uh, section on, and I've been thinking about war stories. Uh, um, first of all, probably the they are fundamentally hero stories. They are foundational stories, civilizational stories. Probably the original war story of all time, and it's one of the original stories of all time, is the Epic of Gilgamesh. Um, you know, uh, and then, of course, you know, uh, the Homeric uh, tales uh, of, of, of the Trojan War which have been brilliantly analyzed. Uh, Homer has been, not Homer, um, uh, Ulysses, has been brilliantly analyzed in recent times as an example of a soldier suffering from what we would today call moral harm, maybe even PTSD, but certainly moral harm. This is a gravely morally damaged human being, damaged by the war. Uh, and you can, you can, you know, uh, uh, Achilles in Vietnam was uh, the great book uh, on this on this topic. Um, uh, then primary sources, uh, I interviewed uh, veterans uh, from Iraq and Afghanistan, um, mostly Americans in that case, because that's whom I had mainly had access to. But I, you know, since my last book came out back in 2017, I was getting emails from people actually in combat zones who were like reading it on Kindle, I presume. Um, and so, I mean, I was in contact with, you know, Australians and Canadians and I mean, Western Westerners for the most part. Uh, but some of the Westerners, I, Western soldiers I interviewed here had remarkably different views of, for example, the Taliban uh, than is the average American view of the Taliban or the journalistic view of the Taliban or the uh, either right wing or left wing view of the Taliban in this country. I mean, they talked about walking into villages where the, you know, the elder was clearly a, a, you know, a Taliban leader, but he was a decent guy. Uh, and, uh, uh, and of course, we now, again, that history of that war has already been rewritten correctly um, as having produced more Taliban over the course of the war than, you know, the methods used, the the lack of mercy used uh, frequently. There was all kinds of merciful behavior as well. Uh, and I mean, he the same the same guy told me about how local, despite the Taliban's prohibition on having any contact with the sort of foreign military forces or even their medical forces, if a Taliban, if a not a Taliban, an Afghan child was was injured in a in, in by a mine or or shot or something. Um, that their parents would immediately take them to the nearest Western medical because they would be no, no holes barred medical attention and the Taliban just let it go. I mean, uh, does that make the Taliban decent as a movement? Of course not. Uh, does it does it make them anything but a misogynistic uh, early medieval uh, repugnant uh, ideology and governing system? Of course not. But there's a flash of humanity there. Yeah, what, what, what do you see as the, the, the importance of uh, in a war context, separating the individuals involved from the larger forces uh, that are that are fighting against each other. I'm not quite uh, sure I understand. 
in in the sense of you know to to what extent is the humanity and mercy in war um does it come from you know an individual person who might be breaking ranks who decides to help or uh is it kind of a something so brutal that the entire uh group of soldiers fighting just all recognize it yeah look peer pressure is a stop we all know you know for want of a better term peer pressure uh is an astonishing uh psychological enforcer of sort of group act behavior if not motivation and uh and and, and moral thinking People are afraid to go against their group, and often with 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 real reason. And yet, we find astonishing examples. I mean, I think the most spectacular examples come from the most spectacular evil regime uh, in history, and that is from the Nazis. And yet, you still find soldiers who, in the midst uh, in, of illegal, murderous orders, where almost all of their comrades were carrying them out. I'm not talking about even the um, the, the SS. I'm talking about regular German soldiers, whom we know were uh, anything but uh, bloodless. Um, and yet, here and there, there were acts of extraordinary individual courage and consciousness in going against the group. The American example, the most famous, and I think properly famous example, is the three helicopter crew at, at, at Milai, uh, who actually uh, threatened to turn their guns to fire on American troops if they didn't stop murdering uh, Vietnamese, uh, mostly women and children and toddlers and, and, and babies. No, that's astonishing. And those men then went through 30 years of hell uh in the way they were treated by most of american society not all but most of american society fellow officers they had dead animals dumped on their doorsteps at night they they got death threats um uh, uh and 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 i i talk about that in the book and it's a well-known episode so i don't dwell on on, on the my Lai massacre i talk about other ones that were uh, investigated at the time over 200 uh, serious war crimes investigated by the u.s army found to have been war crimes, not publicized, no charges laid, nothing covered up. Um, and that has happened again in Iraq and Afghanistan. And as I say, these soldiers I interview say it's the reason is that the, the entire structure of the military is uh, afraid of bringing the structure of the military into disrepute, so they would rather bury. Um, and I think that's a universal in almost all militaries. You bury the, the information about moral heroism among your own troops and I think the paradox here is, if I'm going to celebrate and discuss moral heroism among troops, say, in Afghanistan or Iraq or Vietnam or, you know, the Eastern Front or whatever, um, well, if somebody did something morally heroic by standing up to, you know, members of their own unit who were committing war crimes, then we have to admit that members of our army were committing war crimes. And that's not an admission that any military, pretty well any military is willing to make at the time and often not for ages afterward. Um, so I, I do think I do think that is in play. You, you asked me about, you know, how did I decide on, on what to put in the book? I mean, I gathered all of this material over over years and interviews and so forth. And, you know, and eventually I settled on this thematic approach. So the book is, as you know, not chronological. It's not like a sort of narrative history with illustrative examples of and in the Crimean War, this happened. And in the Civil War, this happened. It does not like that. It jumps around quite a bit. Um and it's, it seemed to me that there were certain natural sort of what is the role of humanity in war in actual combat situations. But war is much more than combat. It's about, um, you know, institutions like nursing corps. It's about um, and what opportunities are there for uh, mercy in modern warfare that just seems so sudden, 
so technological? How can you possibly have a flash of recognition of humanity in war in the air, for example? And yet we do, or war at sea, and yet we do. I was wondering if you, if you could tell, if there's a, maybe a story that you want to tell of, of mercy, uh, maybe something from the Great War, World War I, uh, or if there's any particular story of mercy that that you think that listeners will find particularly uh, illustrative. Well, there are I mean, there are two from the Great War, one American and one German that I think are are, are worth uh, recounting. Um, the American uh, is Barclay, a Medal of Honor winner, uh, who could easily, I think, have given Sergeant York a run for his money as the signature American figure of that war. Uh, did write a book in the 1930s, you know, uh, boasting about his sort of superiority at killing and so on. He killed hundreds of Germans, hundreds. Uh, the incident by which he won, the, uh, for which he won the, uh, he was awarded the Medal of Honor, uh, was actually uh, this was in October 1918. So World War One by by October, the trenches were essentially gone. The war movement was back. The Germans were retreating, running. Uh, back to the Rhine frontier, and the Allied armies were uh, in chase. Um, and there was a broken down French uh, Renault tank. Uh, he climbed inside it, uh, sort of manipulated its machine gun, and held off hundreds and hundreds of Germans, apparently killing one, maybe 200 of them uh, in, in the process. His tank that he was inside was being shelled. He was being, grenades were being lobbed at him. It was quite extraordinary. That's not the point of the story. You can tell those Medal of Honor stories. You go to the Medal of Honor website, you can find all those stories in, in great detail. And I, I did that uh, to confirm uh, details um, of, of these uh, incidents. Um, the story that's truly remarkable is uh, one day uh, his commanding officer to whom he was close was killed. Uh, his company commander was killed. Um, then uh, his unit attacked Germans, about 50 Germans, who were holed up in a rock quarry, and they fought their way into the quarry, and it was hand-to-hand -hand in the quarry with the Americans using shotguns uh, and uh, other weapons, you know, knives, grenades, but shotguns was one of the principal American weapons, and the Germans fighting back with whatever they had. About a dozen Americans were killed and wounded. Uh, all of the Germans were killed, all of them. They were wiped out inside. They, no way out, one way in, no way out of this little rock quarry. And then uh, as he was standing there, and he describes in his book, he describes, you know, how the walls of the quarry were splattered with blood and brains. That's actually a phrase from, from his book. Um, and he saw uh, one of the German corpses moving, moving. Uh, clearly the, the man was still alive and he walked over and he grabbed the foot of this German and he yanked, you know, pulled him out and the German's like, like neek, neek, you know, uh, um, and uh, he pulled him out and he, the, guy, the, the soldier had his hands covering his face. They couldn't see who it was. Uh, he rolled him over and took the, the guy's Luger away from him. So now he had a pistol in each hand and he, he ordered the German to stand up. And when he did, he realized he was a 15 year old boy. This was October 1918. The Germans were on their last legs. These are the the, the last sort of uh, the class of 1920, actually, is what they were. So they were 15 and 16-year-old boys, and they just wiped them all out. And he was terrified. And the rest of his unit, uh, still full of hot blood from the combat that was only 10 minutes ago, uh, the rest of his unit came over to see the prisoner, and immediately it was clear to Barclay that they were going to murder him. And he wouldn't let it happen. He turned around and he turned his own pistol and the Luger he had taken 
and he held them out um, uh, and he turned them on his own unit and he forced them to back down. A couple of his friends then came over and stood behind him, not because they cared about the German, but because they cared about him. Uh, and, uh, you know, he managed to save the boy's life. Uh, later that evening, he handed the boy over to a patrol going by outside the quarry that uh, was taking the column of German prisoners away. Um, but the next morning, and I think this is one of the things that, so that's, if you want a happy war story, there's a happy war story, a man of honor, you know, a killer, uh, an admitted killer, a man who, who talked about enjoying killing, nevertheless, saw a flash of humanity and saved this boy. But then he handed him over, uh, and the next morning he found out that the boy had been murdered. They had carry out. That's the way most stories, war stories, actually. Right. Uh, that's not myth. That's true. The flash of mercy and then and followed by murder followed by murder of a boy who had nothing to do with the german cause probably didn't you know understand anything about germany beyond what was on the map of his uh, his geography class you know uh and so on uh younger even than the boys uh you know quite on the western front you know oh sorry the other one is uh the other great war story is on the german side is uh the famous uh writer uh Junger, ernst Junger. Uh, who wrote a book in 1920 that is much more important uh, than All Quiet on the Western Front inside Germany. It was kind of the signature work of the German military experience, experience in which uh, not at all like what we, I mean, All Quiet is an anti-war book, uh, self-consciously anti-war book. Junger's book is pro-war. Uh, Junger's book speaks about war, uh, war as the father of us all, that's a quotation, uh, and how, uh, you know, his whole generation was, hardened into steel by the war. He thought it was the best thing that could have happened to the generation uh, and, and, and so forth. And, and he, he, you know, he was wounded nine times. He again killed many dozens of enemies, maybe more than that even. And yet he tells a story uh, in passing, and it's only in passing in that book, where he's uh, alone in uh, crossing back over from a patrol in no man's land. I don't know why he's alone, but he's alone. And he comes upon a wounded British off, a British soldier uh, officer, um, uh, and uh, the, the soldier is begging for mercy. Uh, and uh, Junger uh, admits in the book that on other occasions he just simply had been shot in no man's land because it was too much trouble trying to get back across no man's land with the prisoner in tow. Especially if he was wounded, then you had to go slower, and it was not worth the risk. So he was, you know, getting ready to shoot this guy. Uh, and he was groping around the man, uh, and that's how he knew he was an officer. He could feel the badges of rank and so forth, and the man reached into his pocket not to pull out a gun, but he pulled out a photograph. It's almost like, are you making this up? This is actually a true story. He pulled out a photograph we showed him of his wife and his kids, himself with his wife and his kids. And uh, Younger chose not to pull the trigger. He says in his autobiography that he doesn't know why of, he didn't pull the trigger. Um, but that of all the men he encountered in battle, that was the incident that haunted his dreams the most. My conclusion, don't know if I'm right on that, is that Younger didn't just see a flash of humanity of the British officer, but he saw a flash of his own humanity um, and probably regretted having lost so much of it, which is, I think, a fairly common uh, experience of soldiers. This you know, can be a lifetime of regret. Uh, the way I put it in the book and the way I've asked veterans about it, and most of them have, have agreed, um, is that you ask yourself 10 years later, 20 years later, 50 years later, was I decent? 
comparing that story to the Younger's overall disposition of being pro-war, it's almost interesting. It's almost like, how could you not be pro-war? How could you live yourself, live with yourself? <laughs> and yeah, I mean, one of Hitler's favorite writers, you know, uh, he was never a member of the Nazi party, but he certainly leaned, you know, in the hard right direction in the 20s and 30s. Strange man, strange man, never wrote about another book about war. Uh, ended up, you know, experimenting with mescaline in the 30s and, you know, very, very odd duck, uh, you know, uh, but interesting as all get lived into his 90s, lived a long, full life. It, it, yeah, those those two stories that you tell are about uh, sort of individual uh, acts of mercy. Uh, I was wondering, you know, if, if you both, could describe... Both killers, by the way, both of them... Yeah, both killers. Uh, ...confident and boastful killers. And even they... Even they found it. Are there any uh, examples of, of, you know, maybe local truces or, oh. uh, you know, stories of entire groups of soldiers that decided? That... Yeah, I mean, uh, the most famous, as you know, is the so-called Christmas truce. Yeah. Uh, which I was going to say besides the Christmas truce, because yeah, I think the Christmas truce... For the moment, it was multiple ceasefires yeah, uh, all down the line. Uh, uh, yeah, I would actually say that uh, those kind of sort of ceasefires um, even ones for kind of traditional holiday seasons are not unusual in dozens of wars. Uh, I include some of these examples, but there were there were dozens of them. Um, there have been Ramadan truces and Christmas truces and, you know, uh, in Vietnamese military history, uh, ironically enough for Americans, Tet was a time of traditional or truce in the fightings and so on, which is one of the reasons why somebody at South Vietnamese soldiers were home for the holidays. Um, when the offensive was launched, but but those are grand truces, and that's like the big big stories. But little local truces happen all the time, and we're not talking about overnight to celebrate Christmas and sing you know old Lang Syne you know in the trenches. We're talking about two hours, and the, I think the two most common causes of a local truce, usually not always, but usually initiated by one side or the other's medical officers is uh and that's the most common and that is to go out into the you know the little no man's land we may not call it that but whatever is between any lines of soldiers in any war that's a no man's land um and to cease fire that really truce is the wrong word truce is an old-fashioned word ceasefire might be the more modern word they both mean the same thing actually but uh you know uh but ceasefire we'll call it um and to uh go out and collect the wounded uh and very often this will be initiated by the side who uh, is hearing wounded from the other side, has a kind of, well, we, those men, they're no longer like a danger to us. They should be helped. But they're not our guys. But we don't think their medics, your medics, will come out if they think we're going to shoot them. And by the way, it's a myth that medics don't get shot at. They actually get targeted, uh, if anything, more uh, than other troops. In, in the Second World War, by the end of uh, 1944, 45, um, the joke about American the cross on American, um, you know, the red and white, the white circle and the red cross on American medic helmets. Uh, soldiers would jokingly, sickly, darkly jokingly call them uh, aiming stakes um, because snipers would, you know, pick them off and then like guys would come out to bring in the medic. Anyway, um, so I think that one of the most common causes is, all right, we'll cease fire for two hours. Come and get your boys. Um and, you know, with gratitude and people will wave and go back. And the remarkable thing about war as well is at the end of the two hour period, firing resumes and you go back to trying to killing each other and wounding each other and maiming each other. 
that happens all the time. It might be a four-hour truce, a two-hour truce, and so on. The other cause that people may not uh, realize that's very frequent in war is to go out to collect the dead. That each side has an interest. If there had been a firefight or hand-to-hand combat, and then each side had pulled back, you know, out of firing range, there's often an interest. And here it always takes somebody to initiate this. Uh, it's frequently a medical officer, almost always a medical officer when it comes to a medical truce. Interestingly, medical officers are always proposing little ceasefires to go out and collect the wounded, and commanding officers very frequently refuse them. Um, they don't. They think it's a drain on morale. They think, um, but anyway, there are various reasons why they may not agree to even a truce that would help your own guys collect your own guys. But collecting the dead is probably the second most common initiator of a little local ceasefire. And these ceasefires could be like a few hundred meters wide, or they could be you know a mile and a half wide, or whatever the terrain is, or just on the other side of the river, or whatever. Yeah, I'm very interested in the the character of. of- the medics that you discuss in the book and, you know, do, do med- are, are medics just like, <laughs> obviously it's hard to psychologize each individual person and each individual group, but, you know, are medics maybe more likely to, you know, participate in these acts of mercy because of their predisposition towards medicine, or is it just that they tend to uh, be the people that are trying to do ceasefire because it helps them, you know, <laughs> helps them bring, you know, recalibrate and then they can get back to, to killing. I'll be honest and say, I don't know the answer with enough confidence to just say flat out, this is the answer to that, that question. But I would, I would caution on a couple of things, uh, which is uh, in mass warfare, modern mass warfare. Now, this will be different in Afghanistan or Iraq where medics are professional and like you say, and they have medical training and so on. But in World War One and World War II, um, you know, they basically went down the line in the training camp and they went one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. You're the medic. There was no predisposition to medical training. Uh, they were just like the guy that he just you're the medic. I would also add the thing that we forget often is in a, going out alongside the medic are orderlies, uh, stretcher bearers. Uh, and that is just as morally heroic uh, to do that. Um, so. Um, uh, some medics, you know, in World War II, World War One, Civil War, uh, but when you get into mass conscription, some of the medics are people who were conscientious objectors. So they are, you know, maybe on a higher level of moral awareness going into 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 the combat, uh, and they won't fight, but they they're not allowed out uh, unless they're absolute conscientious objectors, in which they say, "I will do absolutely nothing to support the war effort." In which case, you know, they were, you know, in in this country, they were put in federal prison uh, in 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 the Second World War. Uh, uh, but in many other countries, they were shot. Uh, I mean, there was no tolerance tolerance for conscientious objection in Germany or the Soviet Union. Damn, um, there were conscientious objectors, but they didn't survive for the most part. Uh, but those, you know, they will end up in the medical corps, and so so accepting that, and that's only a minority. The vast majority were just regular guys. Uh, who were, I would think nurses are different. They're medical professionals. They're often volunteering to go to the front. They want to be closest to the place they can give aid uh, and so on. Uh, usually, but not exclusively women, of course, medical, military med- medical history. Uh, it's really only until the second half of the 19th century that women start replacing the traditional male nurses in most militaries. And then they replace them overnight because they need the males to fight 
that's basically it. fundamental is that. Um, so I'm not sure uh, uh, that there's any special predisposition to act mercifully. Um, and medics have other kinds of issues. I mean, they're more likely to be traumatized by proxy, by the kind of wounds they see and the suffering they deal with all the time. And um, uh, and this is an unpleasant reality, but a lot of medics in the Second World War uh, became um, morphine addicts because they had access to it. Uh, and, and they had pretty minimal training, by the way. And they were... You know, a tourniquet was often put on wrong and that caused the loss of a limb or, you know, um, too many morphine vials jabbed into a soldier would kill him, uh, that kind of thing. You, you also describe uh, military strikes and desertion. And mm. often, you know, a topic like desertion is seen as to be this dishonorable thing. But, uh, I think in every country, that's how it's treated at the time. It's a desertion um, or uh, draft resistance uh, and so forth. We tend to have a different view of that decades later. Yeah. Uh, would you would you share for listeners, uh, you know, some some of the ways that you think about desertion or military strikes, examples of it being uh, indicative of, of mercy? Well, uh, there were the, the, the best singular one man example of that was uh, an Austrian of uh, he was an ethnic Czech, but he was from, you know, Austria, which was annexed to Germany in 38. Uh, he was then conscripted into the Wehrmacht when war broke out the next year uh, as he was heading off, you know, to report to uh, to the war. His mother gave him a small white cloth and said, make sure you always keep this on your person and encouraged him to desert at any opportunity uh, that he could. Uh, he was, they was an anti-Nazi family. They were, you know, opposed to the war. They were for, they were Austrian. They didn't regard themselves as German, uh, but he was conscripted anyway. Um, and he, uh, he tried to desert, uh, so he served along the Eastern Front. He was a truck driver. He saw the uh, Holocaust uh, in operation. He saw the Einsatzgruppen behind the lines, the killing, um, and so forth. He, he recognized that he was not in as much danger as, you know, front soldiers, uh, but uh, but he couldn't bear it any longer, and he tried to desert. Uh, he failed in his first effort in 42, I think it was, uh, and he had to force his continue serving for two years, but in 44, he found himself in Belgium, uh, and he crawled under the barbed wire with his white handkerchief his mother had given him, and he successfully uh, deserted uh, to the Allied side. Okay, so you're saying he's just trying to save his save his save his own rear, is he? No, because what he did immediately was volunteer for an old Czech unit in the British Army and uh, turned around, picked up a rifle. So he wasn't a conscientious objector. Uh, he just objected to the Nazi war, and he he th and he thought he had to do his bit to stop what he had seen uh, the Nazis doing, and he fought to the end of the war in a Czech unit. Now. That led me to this larger issue, which is well known, I think, in Germany and Austria, but not in the United States or Britain, because it happened in Germany and Austria, which was there were large scale numbers of desertions. Um, there were whole whole units uh, from Alsace-Lorraine annexed into Germany that were then conscripted into the German army, but felt themselves to be French or certainly not part of this cause. Uh, and they were serving on the Eastern Front. The whole unit deserted. You know, they would hundreds of men would cross over and having in both world wars. Um, and the um, uh, what happened in both Germany and Austria is 
the, there was a, a, a movement to recognize deserters as kind of morally heroic. I hate the phrase, conscience of the nation. Uh, I think everyone should have their own. Uh, but, um, uh, but nevertheless, that was kind of the movement. These were the conscience of the nation. And partly it was the politics of we need somebody to redeem us from the Nazi collaboration that, 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 that too many of us participated in. But that's exactly what stopped it. Because if you were to acknowledge that these people were morally heroic and that they could object to the Nazis uh, behave morally, heroically, anti-regime and live, then it put the lie to the claim of the clean, so-called clean hands of the Wehrmacht, that we had no choice, we were just soldiers like you, our government conscripted us, we had to fight in the war. No, you didn't, apparently, uh, because tens of thousands chose not to. But this was uh, a movement that they, they were denied pensions, they were denied um, uh, respectability, they were denied social acceptance. It wasn't until uh, within the last 10 years, 10 years, uh, that finally in both Austria and Germany, not only were they given full legal recognition, uh, they were, you know, sort of celebrated uh, socially, statutes, deserters, I know, I know of no other statue to war anywhere. Uh, which celebrates deserters, but there are deserter statues um, as morally heroic uh, opponents of Nazism in both Ger in Austria and um, and 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 in Germany. Um, uh, the, the thing is, of course, that the fact that it only took place ten years ago tells you the reason why the wartime generation had to die. They yeah. wouldn't accept it. They wouldn't it, accept. It. It's interesting to to compare that uh, story with. You know the stories told in Christopher Brown's book uh, *Ordinary Men*, uh, yes, and the sort of this, you know, the, the sort of the flip side of you know the, uh, the police battalion. I guess it is the clean, yeah, the, the clean, the police battalion, uh, which is the sort of the clean hands, more of the clean hands. Well, there's a whole there. thing. I mean, uh, and and the the Western powers, meaning the United States, Britain, Canada, the rest of them, kind of uh, wink and a nod participated in this notion of the Vermont clean hands because. Uh, the imperative by 1949 uh, and 55 was to have uh, the Germans in Wehrmacht, uh, sorry, the Germans in NATO, uh, and and we wanted to learn from them. I mean, how many Germans convicted, German generals convicted in the Nuremberg trials uh, were released after three years, four years, five years? I can tell you, the majority of uh, And they were released so they could become advisors to NATO and so on. Because who were we expecting to fight next? The Russian army. Um, uh, and uh, so there's all kinds of sort of moral collaboration uh, with that. Um, but yeah, yeah. yeah go ahead. The, the other two groups that you that you discuss, um, you know, we've covered soldiers, we've covered covered medics. Obviously, medics are still still in the army. But uh, you know, what what about mercy towards prisoners uh, or civilians demonstrating mercy or mercy demonstrated towards civilians who were right. just caught in the in the mix well i have a section of the book i mean the book is each chapter is thematic but there are there are there are sub themes of larger sections so i have a section on combat i think i can't remember three or four chapters and then i have a section the one you're talking about is basically the traditional idea in when i say traditional it's really only modern international law there's some if you go back into so-called just war theory and doctrine as elements of this, but the notion of non-combatant immunity. So civilians are supposed to be excluded from targeting and warfare. Well, we haven't done that for a while, have we? Um, uh, I mean, let's remember that 
I mean, I, you know, I teach this way, so pardon me, your listeners have to pardon me if I'm this stark on online as well, because uh, I think I think uh, the truth is shocking. But let's remember that in the Second World War and in the First World War, both sides, and that includes us, used starvation as a principal method uh, of warfare against the enemy. That's what the U-boats were all about. That's what the blockades were all about. In World War II, the American uh, code name for uh, a, a part of their operation to deny supplies to, to Japan was deeply honestly named Operation Starvation. It's actually called that. Uh, but that's what we call the Pentagon, the War Department. So we were more honest in general. Uh, at any rate, um, so uh, I'm sorry, I lost track with. No, but you know, to, to, I, I don't think uh, you have any reason to apologize to listeners because it is it is the truth. I, I, I mean, much in the way of you know, the, the United States military is has it, it's there's no point in a in painting a clean, perfect picture of good guys versus bad guys because it's just not. Well, it's what it's people not true. want. It's what people want. It's what you know. I'm, I suspect that the Amazon reviews will start coming in, and there are going to be people who say. This is disgusting. You know, where you know, where, where are the happy stories about you know, sort of the moral heroes? And why do you have so many things about good Germans and bad Americans? Well, I have good Americans in there too, and bad Germans in there as well. But that's one of the major points of the book, is that I, I this I was you asked me again, how do I select these things? I was self, I mean, there's so many examples to choose from, but I was very self-conscious, um, and purposeful would be the better word, uh, in making sure that the major point was represented in actual life, real life examples, that you can find decent men in the most evil of uniforms, and you can find evil men in what we would, re we would normally regard as decent uniforms fighting in a just cause. So there were indecent Americans and Brits and Canadians uh, and Australians and others and there were vile Japanese, and there were uh, morally exquisite uh, Japanese. Uh, the number one Japanese fighter pilot of the entire Second World War, with the highest number of kills, who survived the war and became, uh, his, his death is extraordinary. He actually had a heart attack at a U.S. Navy dinner in his honor. He was being celebrated. This was uh, about 20 years ago. Um, uh, but uh, He was being celebrated by the U.S. military? Yes. And he, was, he was famous. Uh, he was famous. Uh, one of the things that made him famous was early in the war, uh, he actually had buzzed an American uh, airfield. Um, I think it was in the Solomons. Uh, he had buzzed an American. He and his wingmate said, "Let's go and do something spectacular." Um, and so they they buzzed an American airfield, flew down low. Everybody came out to look, and then they did aerial somersault. Uh, they did they did literal you know aerial acrobatics over the American airbase. Um, and, uh, you know, drop, drop notes and said who they were and so on and so forth. That became famous um, among American flyers. And he shot down, he killed Americans. He shot down American aircraft. He shot down bombers and fighters. He was really good. I think I can't remember his kill total, but it was 60-something, I think it was. Uh, I mean, he was the highest recorded Japanese kill total in the, in, in the Second World War. But the incident that I relate um, is uh, at one point, uh, this was over, I think, New Guinea, uh, when the Australians were sort of pulling back and they were trying to get the civilian population out. And um, I think it was a Guinea. Uh, and, and, and he had orders from his commander. They were ordered that you shoot down anything you see. You shoot down any aircraft that you see. And he flew up, basically, it would be a DC-3. It was a civilian aircraft. And he flew up 
flew up beside it. And you have those little round windows on those old kind of little windows, but he could see through them. He saw uh, a woman, a uh, white woman, uh, inside the aircraft. And immediately he thought of the very kind American school teacher who had taught him English. Uh, and he didn't just not shoot the aircraft down, he escorted it to safety. Um, and, uh, you know, he talked about, um, I, I think he found mercy, you know, at 10,000 feet in a zero. Uh, and that is what I mean by a flash of recognition of humanity. It was, he went flying over there to shoot the aircraft down. Uh, and uh, the reason he flew up alongside it was he decided, well, I, okay, I don't have to shoot it down, but let me force it to land so that we can capture all these people in it, right? Uh, and and the, the pilot was stiff and wouldn't land. So he, as he flew right up next, like right beside the aircraft, looked in, saw the window, saw a woman that reminded him of a school teacher and decided instead to escort the aircraft to safety and sort of flap his wings and let it go. Astonishing things like that. And yeah, he died uh, at a dinner being hosted by the U.S. Navy in his honor. It's an astonishing story. I had a heart attack. He had a heart attack and I think he was in his 80s or something. Yeah, <laughs> that's remarkable. Hey, it's... Uh... You know, it seems to me that it's probably easier to have this flash, this moment when you see uh, someone who, you know, like a civilian, someone who you think shouldn't be there. Obviously, there still are plenty of examples, like you said, of targeting of civilians. But if you see someone who is not a soldier, who's not a combatant, it's probably much easier to remember that life isn't just war. The guy in the uniform might have a weapon, you know, either, you know, which, of course, why the, the, the universal gesture of hands out and hands up, you know, it, 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 people think, oh, that's how you surrender. No, no, that's how you throw you're not armed, which means you just reverted technically, actually legally, although I don't think soldiers are thinking legally at that moment, you just reverted to civilian status, even if you're wearing a uniform. Not quite civilian status, but prisoners. So I have a chapter on prisoners because they have a certain legal status that's supposed to be respected. Civilians, which have an even higher legal status, that's supposed to be respected. And there's all kinds of massive violations, uh, uh, you know, against us um, going back, you know, multiple centuries. But there's also occasions of respect for this, which is um, I'm not sure which is more interesting, the violations or the respect. Um, I think you can't have one without the other. You know, obviously, war is no longer uh, just this hand to hand shoot, you know, sh you know, shooting battle. Uh, there's new technology, submarines, drones, play, I mean, we've discussed planes, cyber, uh, all, cyber all sorts of, of new technologies, new missiles, warf new, new forms of missile warfare being developed um, all the time. Uh, you know, how do you see humanity uh, and mercy in the face of advancing technology? Um, you know, one particular uh, argument that I found really interesting that Samuel Moyne discusses in his book Humane is this notion that drone warfare and our increasing separation from the battlefield makes it harder for us to consider the humanity of those in warfare. Uh, I think so, that's fundamentally true. Yeah. That's fundamentally true, but I don't think it's drones that are doing that. This is a process that has been advancing. It's probably now in excess of 200 years. Um, and it really goes back to uh, indirect fire artillery uh, and even direct fire artillery, you know, the Napoleonic period, when you can kill from a mile away. Well, my, that's a, that's a moral distance, not just a physical distance. 
when you can kill by 1914 from, you know, sort of local artillery was, you know, six to eight kilometers, you know, eight to 10 miles, that kind of thing. Long range artillery, the Germans had a gun that could fire 75 miles. All it could hit was cities. They fired it at Paris, you know, um, uh, and, and things like that. Then you go, everybody knows this, that your listeners all know this, you know, the aircraft take you up uh, to, to uh, heights at which a city becomes an abstraction. Um, you see, you don't see neighborhoods, you don't see families, you don't see a thousand years of effort to build it. Uh, you see this sort of, in World War II, you see this sort of green ghoulish image through your bomb sites, and you pull the lever and get the hell out of there, uh, really not knowing what you did. Um, and uh, and for decades later, uh, not wanting to know that you what you did, because you were told at the time, and you believed, uh, or you chose to believe, but mostly people believed because that's what they were told, that what you had been doing was precision bombing military targets, but that's not what you were doing. You were bombing entire cities. The British even, by the way, finally got honest about what they were doing. They didn't even call it area bombing anymore. They called it morale bombing. They were bombing to kill civilians um, in order to, you know, as you know, break morale and try and force a political revolution, which was not forthcoming. Um, uh, you know, we have to wear that too. Was World War II an absolute, look, very, uh, you're not going to get me to defend very many wars. I won't ask you to. But I'm not a pacifist. <laughs> I'm not a pacifist. I will defend some. Um, uh, some have grand causes. Uh, the liberation of uh, of men and women from slavery. There's no question that was a grand and good and decent cause. Uh, but in every war, I don't care how great and good your cause, but the defeat of Nazism is absolutely essential. Absolutely essential. Um, uh, but uh, but if you want to be an honest, a grown up about these subjects, if you want to be an adult about the problems we live with and the things that we do and the moral stains that we must wear uh, as a people in, in, in our history, you have to recognize that we also use mass starvation as a tactic, civilian bombing as a tactic, and that individuals uh, in our in our in our among our soldiers were capable of doing deeply indecent uh, and horrible things. Now, I think it's difficult to actually develop a culture that encourages virtue. Uh, I was hoping to discover a way to do that. <laughs> I think it's difficult. But some, you know, paraphrase Orwell, you know, uh, some cultures are more equal than others. Uh, I do think that one of the things that we must most avoid are those cultures so we have a kind of basic sort of virtue and people will be virtuous or they won't be virtuous depending on their individual qualities and we can encourage it and we should encourage it and we should punish it when they deviate and all of the rest of that to the degree that we can. But what we must most avoid are those cultures that degrade all virtue, all morality and so on. Um, and there are multiple variations of that, militaristic cultures, fascistic cultures. Um, um, and I actually think the biggest problem, the global, universally global problem, and I see no exit from it, the Ukraine war confirms this on both sides, the fundamental destructive force of modern times, and I'm an historian, so for me, modern means about 250 years, it's nationalism. Uh, it's what perverts our rhetoric, distorts our propaganda, makes us convinced that virtue is exclusive to our side, uh, so we're shocked when we see it on the other side, and um, and we're shocked when we when we see vice in our side. Well, we shouldn't be. And those Americans who were shocked by my lie, 
could have remembered Sand Creek uh, and Wounded Knee. Certainly nothing shocking that American troops would do this. Um, it happened again in Iraq It happened on a smaller scale, and it happened again with the kill team scandal in Afghanistan. It happened with the British forces in Afghanistan. It happened with the Australians. In fact, the Australians made a public apology. The head of their, arm, their military made a public apology uh, to Afghanistan, uh, detailing uh, these sort of killing, staging bodies, you know, uh, basically hunting, hunting civilians and displaying them like trophies as if you would bag them in Colorado or Maine. Um, and uh, I, I, I'm, I'm paraphrasing him, but it's close to a quotation, said this was the worst uh, behavior and crime in the history of Australia's armed forces. Um, you know, um, if you have enough men and today also women in uniform, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure how women are going to behave. Uh, we don't really have enough statistics to know, to say with confidence, they are exactly the same as men. My suspicion, I wish it wasn't, but my suspicion is that they will be. Uh, that we will see the same rage of saint to sadist in females in uniform that we see with males in uniform. Cultures can ameliorate that to some extent. I don't think you can produce. I think it's a ridiculous phrase uh, that has been the title of some books about the American Civil War, the Union Army. I don't think you can have armies of virtue. Um, I think you can have virtuous causes, but armies are armies. Uh, and what you must always guard against is moral corruption, physical corruption, criminal corruption, and so on. And that's really hard to do because civilian population, the civilian leadership doesn't want to hear it. They don't want to hear it. They want to hear that, you know, our guys and gals, they're the heroes. The enemy is incorrigibly evil. The Taliban are all terrorists, aren't they? Actually, most of them were 16-year-old kids who were told by the chieftain at the end of the valley, go down there, there are foreigners, you need to go down there and fight, and, you know, kick them out. Um, uh, that's so much of what's so remarkably sad about wars is how it's young people doing the fighting for issues, oh. nationalistic issues that concern the old uh, I'm sorry. Old, men's, old men start them and young men die in them. That's yeah. been that's been going on for thousands of years. Uh, now young women as well. But uh, we, it, it remains to be seen. I just don't think we have the statistics to say with any confidence how we have some examples of how women behave in war on the margins, sort of in the nursing profession. We have combat examples of how women behave in war, but we don't have like mass combat examples. Yeah, we're going to get them. Um, but we don't have them. We don't have them. Uh, have them yet to say with any confidence to make any sort of grand conclusions. But we've seen, we've been sending men to war for thousands of years, and militaries know exactly how to push the buttons of young men. You know, put me in, coach. I mean, I tell my students uh, that um, I, you know I'm, you're gonna you're not gonna like me saying this because it's completely politically incorrect. But the vast majority of young men don't care what young women think about. They don't care what they might think, care what their mothers think about them to some degree, but they don't even really care. This is not even this peer pressure explanation. They don't really care what other young men think about them. They care what older men think. about them. And militaries know that. And that whole hierarchical structure, which is also in inevitable to any command system. Um, but uh, it, it's also psychologically important. It's powerfully. And when I say old men. You know, uh, to an 18-year-old, somebody who's 25 and got three years' experience, is kind of a, he's, he's the old dude. You know, the major's probably 28. Yeah, I think that I think that's that's really true. That you know, it, it, it can't just be boiled down to peer pressure. Can't just be boiled down to trying to 
you know, to Im- impress a pot- potential, uh, you know, girl or something. Or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, even worse. it's even worse than that, I think, because I don't know what this percentage is. I've never seen a proper study. I don't have the tools to do it. I wish somebody would. But there is a percentage of the male population who enjoy it at its worst. They enjoy it at its worst. Um, The best I can come up with is, you know, we all have, remember the kid, maybe with two or three kids back in junior high or elementary or high school, you know, the kid who uh, was sadistic and liked to torture the neighborhood cat. Well, give him a gun, give him a license to kill, put him in a uniform, tell him he's, and let him loose. Well, we do that. We've done that over the course of the tour. Now, we don't do that as much any longer in the professional armies where you have psychological, you weed people out and you screen and so on and so forth. Um, but when you throw a drift net into the ocean, as we did in World War One and World War Two, on all sides of that, you could expect to bring in all kinds of criminal uh, mentalities, murderous mentalities, rapists and so on. Uh, again, I don't know what the percentage of the male population is. I think some militaries then make it worse uh, with their the internal military cultures that they have. Others ameliorate it, punish it to some degree, at least try and isolate it, uh, and so on. But uh, I, someone needs to do a study of that. Some sociologist. Of, yeah, of and I'm thinking in Tony Jude's book, uh, Post War. He has this just incredibly harrowing description of the Soviet army retreating after defeating uh, the Nazis, and just like the unbelievable amount of murder and rape that oh, rape. On. millions of rape horrific and and also and then he has a quote from stalin where stalin basically yeah. knew about it and said well i can't blame them uh, that so actually I can, I can i can give you something closer to what he actually said which is really it was a yugoslav diplomat because this the red army was actually raping in serbia and yugoslavia which was you know uh, been liberated by tito's communist partisans and so on and were ostensibly on the soviet side and one of these uh, diplomats um uh is in his memoir uh tells this story it's where the story comes from um and stalin's phrase was actually much worse he said i'm paraphrasing the first part but i the second part of what i'm going to say is, is accurate he said you know basically after all the troops the boys have been through after all the troops have been through how can you um Deny them. Here's a quote: "A bit of fun with a woman." I mean, if, if you wanted one, there's there's probably a million quotes to show how evil Stalin was, but that's certainly certainly. Well, what today we would call that is ethnic cleansing. I mean, this what this is what the Serbs did in Bosnia. I mean, is rape the women uh, in terrifying. First of all, there was also a kind of genocidal intention there. Uh, by sort of, quote unquote, defiling Bosnian Muslim women, you made them unacceptable as mates and mothers, you know, down the road. That was part of the intention. That's why, by the way, it was the Bosnian war that led for the very first time to rape being classified as a war crime. For that, we always have always had rape in war. We've had mass rapes in wars, but it was not actually a war crime. Uh, it, it is since the 1990s. Um, but yeah, uh, Stalin, what can you say? What a century. I mean, think of who was alive at the same time. Hitler, Stalin, Mao. I mean, the three greatest mass murderers in the history of the world. Yeah, it's just, yeah, the the, the 20th century is just remarkable. And it's just, you know, just looking at this, this, your final chapter of, uh, you know, advancing technology and the impact that it has on, you know, on, on war. It's, you know, it's, it's frightening because as technology has improved, war has become, more destructive, more violent, more horrific in many ways.
Yeah. And we're on the cusp of now having not even soldiers kill, but a civilian makes a decision, a button is pushed, and a particle beam weapon uh, parked, uh, you know, in dark orbit a thousand miles out or on the surface of the moon, uh, you know, uh, strikes multiple targets and incinerates cities and so forth. And we've already, uh, in the Second World War, uh, 120 German cities were wiped off the map. And as each one, well, not quite wiped off the map, but but badly damaged. And as each one was obliterated, um, the head of Bomber Command took a list of German cities out of his desk drawer and a ruler and a pen, and he crossed out the name of the city and he put it back in. Bush did it with individual names of Al-Qaeda leaders, but this was actually entire cities. And then another 64 cities in Japan, the last two by atomic fire. I mean, you build a city like Nagasaki over a thousand years, and it's gone in a flash. We all know that. But we don't really know it anymore, do we? So if you want, I'll close out with this. You asked me earlier about stories. Um, and I think it's notable that the three globally dominant images of war in the last, say, 40 years, popular cultural images of war, are all full medieval. Sort of uh, Star Wars. Uh, knights, Jedi knights, you know, fighting with swords, uh, Game of Thrones, uh, and Lord of the Rings. Uh, and I was thinking, well, why is this? Why did these things become so hugely popular? I have a theory. I don't know if it's right. I think it's because at the end of the 20th century, we looked back and we knew we can never do that again. But we want to. We love war. We love it. We don't want to give it up. And so what we've done is transmute it in our cultural memories and cultural and modern literature into something in which the small overthrows the great. Uh, and uh, the issues of all time are decided by men with swords. And each one of those, it's not an accident that the decisive warrior, I mean, our knights, kind of a, 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 a traditional nobility is a very kind of reactionary view, actually, that you have sort of like an order of knights that are natural ruling figures, you know, um, uh, and their principal instrument of warfare is the sword. How preposterous! Right. There's no, there's, no one gets getting caught in the crossfire. You know, it's yeah, yeah. yeah. Although I, you know, I think it is interesting. For instance, in Lord of the Rings, which I read when I was in high school and admired the movies, and I think it's a great work of literature. But it, that doesn't mean it should not be critiqued from the point of view of you know what its view of war is. It's a very odd view of war. A very odd view of war. I mean, um, it's all very individual at the end, and yet it's also, you know, total war, industrial war. That's what Mordor is. It's what the you know, the great clanking sounds. I mean, think of the poison floating in the air, the dead vegetation, uh, the sort of anti-life of the whole scenes of when, when they're in Mordor. Well, what is that? That's the Somme. That was Tolkien who was at the Somme in 1916, where there was poison on the in the air, literally in the air, gas weapons. Um, there were clanking monsters, you know, uh, coming across no man's land. There was death all around, a cult of death, worship of death, and so on. Notice also, no women, no children. When you, in Lord of the Rings, defeat an enemy army, it's basically a genocidal endeavor. You slaughter everybody. They don't even take prisoners. There are no women or children to muck things up. And as humanity, I think, is generally okay with killing large numbers of young men. I hate to say that, but I think it's true. Well, I, I, you know, the Russian-Ukrainian war is just an absolute tragedy. But, you know, one of the aspects of it that's so sad to see is people 
you know, people in America cheering on the deaths of oh, young young Russian men. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, yeah, as ahead. if they aren't as if they aren't victims too. <laughs> they aren't. They don't know what the hell's going on. Don't have mothers weeping for them and all of the rest of it. Look, I think it's necessary to kill a lot of Russians for Ukraine to defend itself and to win this war. But I think it's absolutely morally repugnant that any American sitting in his mama's basement is celebrating that. Um, so I, 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 I'm not a TikTok user. In, or not, it's not TikTok. Uh, what is it? Reddit. I'm not a Reddit user in general. But I do follow one channel on the Russian-Ukraine war because you can see videos on there of, that you can't see uh, you know, elsewhere. Uh, but boy, I learned after a week to not look at the comment section on any of these things. Oh, my God. I mean, the... They have no idea exactly what you just said. It's clearly universally, they're all men or boys. Uh, they're, they, uh, their understanding of war is clearly preconditioned by video games. Some of them will even say, oh, this reminds me of the scene. And then they'll name some game that I went to look up until I finally stopped looking at the comment section. Um, it, it was like, uh, that's what they think real war is. They have, they have absolutely no idea. And let's hope they never do. Let's hope they can continue to indulge their adolescent fantasies without being exposed to, to war themselves. But it is morally repugnant. I, I absolutely agree with you that 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 is repugnant to be fearing. It's one thing to say, you know, it was necessary to kill the Russians because they're invading this area or that area. You have to defend yourself. You have every right to defend yourself. And Putin's not going to stop until enough Russians die that, you know, he, uh, maybe it causes social fractures that then you cause him to stop. That's an analytical point um and morally the, the only moral point there is uh the only just war i think that there is it's when you're defending yourself so i think that's the only just war. um otherwise it's just war uh and 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 uh but to be cheering the deaths of a third party in a conflict not yours far away and of whom you know as you said correctly you know nothing who these young men were what their life situation was. And not just the debts. These people are being blown apart and living in horrific ways. I mean, burn wounds and multiple amputations from high explosives. That's modern industrial warfare. Yeah, it's, it, yeah the, I, I'm going to, I'll go on the Reddit thread. And if I see comments like that, I'll send them a link to your book. Um, <laughs> oh, no, please. I don't want any contact with them. <laughs> <laughs> no, you can if you want. I, 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 I would actually do that. <laughs> I don't. I don't. They, they don't strike me as readers. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being a guest in the New Books Network. Uh, you know, this is a, I think, a great conversation. I think, uh, you know, war, war is obviously one of these these things that just is just such a horrific aspect of of life. You know, but it's but a real part of it. And uh, in amidst everything that's horrific about it, there are these these brief moments, brief lights of mercy that you do a, just a kind of islands, aren't they? kind of islands, aren't yeah, they? Oh, yeah, islands of humanity in an ocean of misery. I, yeah. You know, that, that's a great, way that, to put it. that's a great way to put it. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, sir. It was a great pleasure.